Oh, hello there, friends. Today we are going to learn how to be a dictator. Well, kind of. Frank Dickutter is an author, and his most recent book, How to Be a Dictator, looks at eight of the most chillingly effective dictators of the 21st century. So we're going to learn about Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Kim Il-sung, and a couple of leaders that I'm going to leave to Frank to pronounce. But yeah, the characteristics of a dictator are oddly similar whilst also being incredibly unique, as Frank identifies one dictator from one regime at one particular period of time wouldn't work at all if he was to swap places with another. As always, if you've got any questions, comments or feedback, feel free to get at me at chriswillx wherever you follow me. But for now, please welcome Frank Dickutter. I am joined by Frank Dickutter at the beginning of his book tour. Frank, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. So today you're going to teach us how to be a dictator, right? That's the title of the book. Not sure I can um, really help you go all the way. It's not a, So it's not a personal development, self-development how-to book? It um, is probably more of a history book that will tell you how to spot other potential dictators. Got you. Okay. <laughs> well, if there are any budding dictators in the uh, in the audience, they, they might be a little disappointed. But for everyone else, those of us, we're going to be fascinated. So tell us why you wrote the book, first off. Um, well, I'm a historian. And when you think about it, uh, you could pretty much summarize the 20th century uh, in about – a sentence. There is an attempt on on the one hand uh, to separate out powers, in other words, to build up a civil society, um, to have checks and balances. That's a very difficult thing to do. Um, it's frail. It's fragile. Um, but it's made great progress. And then on the other hand, there is an attempt to concentrate all power. In other words, to make sure that there is an authoritarian regime with one person who makes all the decisions. These are two very contradictory trends. Um, and I spent most of my career really studying countries um, where attempts have been made to concentrate powers in the hands of a dictator. Um, so that really was pr what prompted me to write this book. I suppose that when people think back to the 20th century, that, are, that, that, that will be some of the defining characteristics, right? So what is a dictator in its purest form? Well, this may sound strange, but you have to think of a dictator um, as developing against a background of democracy. In other words, to put it slightly differently, we live in an age of democracy. In fact, since the French and the American revolutions of the 18th century, we live more or less in an age of democracy. In other words, uh, sovereignty with the collapse of old regimes in France uh, in particular, uh, power is seen to reside 
no longer in some sort of uh, heavenly mandate or in the divine rights, but in the people. And people select the leader through a process of elections. Of course, this is a, a very gradually unfolding age of democracy, but it means that there is a paradox with dictators. They seize power on the one hand, but they must also create the illusion somehow of popular support. And that's where the cult of personality comes in. That's one of the key focuses of the book. Uh, a dictator must, on the one hand, uh, use terror, you know, the, the secret police, military forces, uh, torturers, spies, a Praetorian guard, concentration camps. But on the other hand, there must also be an attempt to build up what I call a cult of personality. In other words, a dictator must coerce his people into acclaiming him. He must create the illusion that people actually support him. Mm, yeah, you've got to still play the game whilst also not looking like you're playing a different game. Exactly. So this is the great paradox of modern dictators. They all claim to be rather democratic. <laughs> or at the very least, they claim to represent the true will of the people. Yes, I understand. And it's then a, a, a game of switching that round. How much of this do you think is very well laid out in advance from the position of the dictator and how much of it is us post hoc rationalizing they ended up being a dictator could some of them have begun with the best ideas of holding democracy in in mind and then changed when power became easier for them to take and advantages became available uh, I understand the question. It's a very good one. You have to bear in mind that successful dictators are extremely pragmatic mm -hmm. and at heart opportunists. They use whatever comes their way uh, to their own advantage. I'll give you one example. Uh, Hitler carries out a coup in 1923 uh, by storming a beer hall in Munich. It doesn't succeed. But then he turns defeat into a victory by turning the courtroom into a propaganda platform with newspapers reporting everything he says and then uses his time in prison behind bars to write um, his political autobiography called Mein Kampf. Um, this goes on and on. Um, whenever something happens uh, that might be seen uh, to go against a dictator, uh, many of them manage to make the very best of it. Uh, so they are definitely opportunists who seize particular you know, occasions and turn it to their advantage. But on the other hand, I think it's fair to say that most of them are pretty convinced that this sort of, um, they're pretty convinced that power must end up in the hands of one person. All of them express contempt for what they see as weak, wishy-washy parliamentary democracy. Mm. Hitler says so openly. The communists, of course, talk about democratic centralism. In other words, democracy ex exercised by a small committee of people on behalf of the entire population. <laughs> it doesn't sound massively like a democracy, that. No. <laughs> But of course, again, it's crucial to realize that they must invoke the will of the people. Mm, yeah, they must try to come up with at least the illusion 
um, that coercion is in effect consent. How much of the rise of a dictator do you think is the manifestation or the projection of one person's inner personality, their particular makeup that they have? And how much of it do you think is them chasing a dream? I guess uh, the difference between a career and a calling, so to speak, are some of them doing it because they just want power at all at all costs? Or do you think some of them have got a, a more a meaning, more purpose behind their particular movement? Yes, it's, it's the classic question of power versus ideology. Are yes. they there to seek power and more power? Or do, do they have a particular vision, a particular ideology? That's exactly I think, what I meant, yes. Just yes, indeed. <laughs> well, it's an old debate. And what I'm trying to show is that all the emphasis that historians have put on ideology. I remember being a student 30 years ago, and I was all about studying the ideology of Marxism, communism, studying Maoism, studying Leninism, Stalinism, you name it. But in the end, what I'm trying to show is that ideology doesn't really matter all that much to a dictator. What matters is not loyalty to a creed, but loyalty to his person. That's what a dictator wishes. The reasons for that are reasonably straightforward. A dictator, by definition, is somebody who seizes power, and power has to be maintained. Power seized through violence must be maintained through violence, and that can be a very blunt instrument. Um, so it's much better to try to create loyalty, to enforce it, so to speak. Uh, most of all, when a dictator seizes power, um, he runs the risk of somebody else doing the same thing to him. In other words, there are rivals somehow waiting in the wings. The prospect of a stab in the back appears. So what do you do to control your inner court to make sure that your allies or rivals uh, don't organize a coup against you as new dictator? I think here, again, cult of personality is all important. You make sure that the people around you acclaim you. Uh, they are abased by being forced to acclaim you as a great leader. And most of all, by acclaiming you as a great leader, uh, allies, rivals, all of them have to lie. And when they lie, when everybody lies, it's very difficult to find out who actually supports who. So loyalty is the greatest concern for any one dictator. They're constantly keeping tabs on the people around them. They're worried about who might betray them. Yeah, there's a, a Instagram quote going around, which you probably almost definitely won't have seen, but it's talking about boys that cheat on girls. And it says, if he cheats with you, he'll cheat on you. And I think that what that suggests is past behavior is suggestive of future behavior. And if you've taken power and you have managed to have a group of sycophants around you that are supporting you in this power grab, you're totally right. It must be an incredibly anxious and uh, paranoid environment to be in as that one person at the top. If you did it, what's stopping everybody else? Well, that's exactly it. That's, that's precisely the point, is that you 
want to have people who are loyal or at least proclaim themselves to be loyal. <laughs> You're constantly watching your back. So you really, as a dictator, you somehow teeter between hubris on the one hand, having mm -hmm. to make all major decisions on, the, on your own because you don't trust anyone else, and paranoia on the other, where you see plots around you where you imagine that there might be enemies when in fact there might be allies, when you purge friends and foes alike, um, when you are pretty much uh, on your own at the very top, towering far above all the others. This metacognizant way of living, almost having two lives, your own plus the one that you're playing with everybody else, plus keeping in mind all of the interplay the connections between all of those people and what they genuinely believe and the games they're playing as well it must be almost untenable to to live this life without being on the verge of a breakdown at all times you can only imagine how uh how testing it must be i've learned a, a little bit about hitler and i know that he was on all manner of cocktail of drugs by the end of world war ii in an effort to keep him up with some maladies that were perhaps oncoming no matter what, but definitely a lot that were due to stress and just him trying to keep all of this up. During your research for the book, did you find any dictators who seemed to be designed for the job, so to speak? They were just made to measure for the tasks that they had to do and they took all of this pressure and worry in their stride? Well, the ones who last uh, tend to be very gifted. Uh, we have images in mind of uh, you know Hitler being a sort of non-person or a grotesque figure, yeah. but the truth is that he was extremely hardworking and he was a very good orator, actor, and choreographer. He worked endlessly at building up his party over the many years in the early 1920s. Um, he had a true instinct for power and was suspicious of anyone who wasn't true, truly loyal. Um, the same could be said of Stalin, an enormous appetite for work, but also great organizational ability. Of course, some went too far. Mussolini spent by some account, uh, half of his time projecting himself as the omniscient, omni, omnipotent dictator of Italy, uh, while also running something like half a dozen ministries. Um, he had time, apparently, in the 1930s to even dictate um, the collar uh, for the cover of a women's magazine. So it's a dictatorship that extended all the way down to daily objects, weirdly enough. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, it goes hand in hand, I suppose. This level of neuroticism must require the dictator to be very thorough, must make them fearful of relinquishing control uh, and of delegating, but also they have to do that, right? They, you can't scale this movement without at least letting some people into the inner circle. Yes, but it's, it's best um, to, uh, to um, purge occasionally, which is why it is so very dangerous to be the number two in a dictatorial regime, in particular communist ones, because there's always the suspicion that number, from, on the part of number one that number two wants to take its place. I understand. So in the career of a dictator, 
where are the major stumbling blocks? Where do they mostly fail? We're talking about how to be a dictator. And if we've got our imaginary, our imaginary dictator in the audience who's listening, what does he need to do first? Well, there, there is really no magic list. Mm. <laughs> it, it's, on the one hand, uh, these dictators have an awful lot in common, although you will always find an exception to the rule. But on the other hand, they're extremely individual. And you can see why. Conditions vary enormously from a uh, reasonably developed modern country like Germany in the early 1930s to a very impoverished, mainly rural country like Haiti in the 1960s under Papa Doc or Duvalier. So the conditions vary enormously. Mm. So I guess one of the very attributes of a dictator is to understand local culture extremely well and be able to use it in order to become a dictator. If you would take Stalin and take him out of the Soviet Union and somehow make him run the People's Republic of China for a while, it would not work. These are individuals who are very closely linked to the, the, the times uh, and circumstances um, of, of, of their countries. They were made to measure in that way, I suppose. Very much. And they also made themselves to measure. They were not afraid of turning ideology uh, on its head. Take, for instance, Marxist ideology. Um, It says that there will be a world revolution carried out by the workers. But Mao, in 1927, takes off to the countryside and embraces the very peasants that are derided by orthodox Marxism. In other words, he makes villages, uh, you know, the the focal point of his revolution, turning it upside down. Kim Il-sung, North Korea, very much the same thing, embraces Marxism, but then after a while comes up with the theory of self-reliance, where people who are self-reliant can somehow achieve the revolution without any regard to the so-called material circumstances, which is, you know, the bedrock of Marxist theory. Mm-hmm. In fact, by 1972, Kim Il-sung in North Korea has virtually written Marxism out of the constitution. To even study Marx or Engels uh, is seen as a sign of lack of loyalty to the leader himself. So, in other words, under Kim Il-sung, one reads Kim Il-sung. Under Mao, you read Mao. Under Stalin. Uh, They've transcended what they were before. Quite. Quite. That's interesting. So, it's a recently brought up topic uh, with regards to North Korea and the movements that it's making at the moment. So, why don't you tell us some of the things that you learned about Kim Il-sung during your research? I'm fascinated to learn about how North Korea got the particular... uh, approach to politics that it has now. Now, Kim Il-sung is quite an extraordinary figure because he is uh, somebody who is pretty much imposed by the Soviet Union on an unwilling population. Yet within several years, he manages to play two great backers and superpowers uh, against each other to obtain more independence, namely the People's Republic of China that helps Kim Il-sung start uh, his war of unification against South Korea uh, in the early 1950s and the Soviet Union that installed him in the first place. 
So within years, by 1956, he's managed to play the one against the other, has managed to purge all those who were loyal to Moscow or to Beijing and install his own people. By then, he tours the country in whirlwind visits to factories, to the countryside, dispensing his advice, making himself visible literally to millions. His portrait is everywhere. His words are in every newspaper's uh, committed to memory by ordinary people. Um, by the 1960s and 70s, um, family members, up to uh, a good dozen of them, are in key positions of power. So from there onwards, you can see that this will become a dynasty. Uh, when he passes away in the early 1990s, his son takes over and keeps all the attributes of power, namely fear, terror on the one hand, and a, an extravagant cult of personality on the other. It lasts to this very day. Is it common for dictators to keep it in the family? It doesn't seem that way, but my, my understanding isn't so much. Certainly with North Korea it does, but has that been a, a tactic used elsewhere? No. Again, it, it all depends on circumstances. And the dictators who succeed, so to speak, by that I mean they die in their own bed as opposed to <laughs> Hitler uh, or as opposed to Mussolini. Yeah. But the ones who succeed um, are extremely pragmatic. Uh, so if you can't trust anyone, it might be a good idea to have a family member there. But it doesn't always work like that. Uh, Mao tried uh, with the nephew, but it backfired rather badly. Another example, besides Kim Il-sung, who successfully installed his own son, would be Papa Doc, who I mentioned earlier on, or Duvalier. He manages to uh, install his own son um, in 1972 when he dies. Uh, so that regime will last for another good decade or so. But the truth is, Succession is always a great issue for dictators. The, the reason is very simple. In a democracy, it's not so much that people get voted in, they get voted out. <laughs> uh, if yeah. you're a dictator, there's no point at which you can leave without fear for your life. It's very difficult to just say, ah, I think I've been a good dictator for 20 years. Now, let me get back to my stamp collection and go fishing in the countryside. <sighs> There's no gentle retirement plan once you've chosen the profession of dictator, is there? Precisely. Uh, that is interesting. So I know that we've got some examples from Ethiopia as well. I, I, I didn't know the background was so dictatorial. Uh, what's the story behind that? Well, again... An empire, Ethiopia, Haile Selassie, and then a famine that very much prompts a popular uprising in 1974. Uh, a number of soldiers seize power. One of them, called Mengistu, gradually eliminates all others uh, and becomes dictator. He manages to eliminate all the others because he's extremely hardworking. He's very good at reading other people. And he's more determined and ruthless than all the others. One of the very first victims is General Aman Andom, who was actually the man who took Mengistu under his wing when he was still young. So Mengistu sends uh, soldiers to kill him 
several years after the 1974 revolution, making sure that the very man who more or less adopted him and became his mentor is eliminated. He does so with others too. That big committee called the Derg, Derg, D-E-R-G, means committee in Amharic, um, was established by about 120 people. By 1976, no more than 60 are left. People are literally carried out from the imperial palace, the grand palace that he occupies, um, after having been shot with a gun. That is not a very good party. I don't want to go to... No, no. The emperor himself, Haile Selassie, is is deposed, locked up, and allegedly throttled to death. Mengistu has him buried in the Grand Palace, which he occupies, underneath his office, and then places his desk right above his corpse, somehow absorbing the charisma of the emperor. Wow. That is, um, that's one way to make sure that he's dead, I suppose. Um, So one of the topics that I know that you covered was to do with parades and me thinking about uh, dictatorships. You have these images of huge armies and these massive shows of force. Were there some of these that were particularly massive that you looked at? Well, they're all, they're all massive. I mean, the whole point of a parade, of course, is to display your military might. Mm-hmm. The, the world is astonished when on 20 April 1939, uh, the, the formal corporal called Adolf Hitler acts like an emperor sitting on a gilded chair on a, on a raised dais reviewing the mighty war machine he has assembled. But what you have to bear in mind is that it's also meant to be a display uh, by ordinary people of their love for the dictator. So in the case of Haiti, for instance, occasionally people are rounded up with lorries, um, very much uh, brought to the capital, Port-au-Prince. Roads are locked off. They're not fed. They're not given anything to drink. And then they must parade in front of the presidential palace and cheer their leader, chant the slogans, and put on a happy face. They must quite literally create the illusion of consent so parades are very much part of that cult of personality where people are if you wish condemned to perpetual enthusiasm yeah again doesn't sound like a good afternoon to me i don't want to be in the palace where i get shot i don't want to be on the parade where i don't get any drink or water it it doesn't sound like a very happy place to be have there been many dictatorships where you would have said the population had a good time well, this is the great thing about dictators is that the population always looks very happy. They're there <laughs> cheering the leader. They're there yeah. chanting the slogans. They put on happy faces. And when the dictators die, in the case of Mao in 1976, in the case of Kim Il-sung in 94, uh, people seem to cry in Korea. They pound their chests, rip off their clothes, you know, or shake a, a, a fist at the sky in feigned rage, mm. but you don't know who believes what. Are they really upset or not? In some cases, um, people will pretend to cry in public, but once they are back home, they will open a good bottle of wine and celebrate very quietly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is crazy. I saw a Vice documentary uh, about where they'd gone into North Korea and this 
soap opera style um actor uh, actorship i suppose as people were driving around and they were going into restaurants where there was huge swaths of serving staff and food laid out but the only customers were them and then they'd go, exactly a, they'd go to a school and speak to the children and the children would have oddly clear responses and so would the parents that sounded almost as if they'd been scripted and again it's that that show of unification isn't it both inward and outward well that's exactly it in 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 a good dictatorship dictators are great actors and people are great actors as adolf hitler said uh in an unguarded moment uh he considered himself to be europe's uh, greatest performer but ordinary people too are great actors they must learn how to jump to attention chant the slogans cheer the leader uh, and if they don't they risk being fined imprisoned occasionally shot occasionally shot well at least i've got a chance of not being shot this time mm. um so as we move towards the modern day of politics how do you think this last 100 years history of prominent dictators has shaped how we look at politics now and also how political figures nowadays are behaving well Remember what I said in the beginning, you could summarize the 20th century as two opposite trends. One trend is towards the separation of powers and the building of an accountable civil society with checks and balances and an independent judicial system, rule of law. Mm -hmm. And the other one is a trend towards the concentration of power in the hands of either one party or one person. And one party always ends up being one person. So if you look at it from a very broad perspective, then quite clearly one trend has been on the up and the other one um, has not quite vanished, but very much been uh, on the losing end of history. Mm. Uh, to put it differently, I, I, I think we tend to underestimate how far we have come. We tend to overestimate uh, how many dictators there still are <laughs> and what threats there might be to democracy. We hear terms of uh, a coup or a dictator or a cult of personality used in the case of um, democratically elected people, Theresa May <laughs> uh, or, or, or Trump, sometimes even the Pope. But quite clearly, uh, there was a time in the 1930s, in the 1950s, in the 1970s, when half the planet was run by rather nasty dictators. Now, remember that even in Europe, up till 1973, there was no talk about Western democracy, as in Western Europe, because it was only the northwest of Europe. In Portugal, you had Salazar. In Spain, you had Franco. In Greece, you had a number of nasty generals. It was all, only with the Carnation Revolution in Portugal and the death of Franco that all of a sudden one could talk about Western Europe as being democratic, never mind the rest of the world. <laughs> and then you have the collapse of the Soviet Union, all of it, in 91, 92. Uh, we've come a very long way. It's not to say that we shouldn't be vigilant. Do you think it would be realistic for a dictator to rise to power now? It's bloody hard work <laughs> and i would say that as a result of all the dictatorships we've had in the 20th century it is extremely difficult 
because with every dictator that has been defeated, uh, democracy has been reinforced, has been fortified. That separation of powers has become more entrenched. The separation uh, of power, the checks and balances have become far more sophisticated. So it's difficult. It's not to say that uh, we don't have dictatorships. Clearly, there is one in the People's Republic of China, and clearly there's one in Northern Korea and other countries. Um, but overall, um, I would think it's pretty much a losing bet. Yeah, you're going to be fighting against the tide a little bit, aren't you? It's interesting, so. interesting what you say about this cult of personality and these these terms that are thrown around, these slurs or labels or sometimes just throwaway lines. People are constantly looking for the new world order. There's the accusations of the queen being a lizard person or mm. Donald Trump being part of some Masonian lodge that's actually trying, you know, is this, is this people chasing down a narrative which has kind of been and gone a little bit now? Well, it trivializes what happens to yeah. hundreds of millions of ordinary people mm -hmm. throughout the 20th century. Um, in the People's Republic of China under Mao alone, tens of millions of people were starved, beaten, worked to death. Um, the number of victims under Stalin is also enormous, not to mention Adolf Hitler. So when we use terms like a coup or dictator or a cult of personality um, for people who have been more or less democratically elected in the 21st, um, I think there's a danger of uh, losing any sense of perspective. That's happening with everything at the moment, though, right? The people are throwing around the word Nazi like it's ca calling someone tall. Like it's just a, a, a common word to call someone or accusing Trump of being a white supremacist. And he said a lot of things that I find pretty terrible to agree with. But there's a big jump between what he said and being a white supremacist. Indeed. If you want to know whether there's a dictatorship or not, I would say travel to the country you're interested in and find out if you can say something negative about the man in charge. Well, I would say there's plenty in the United States that is critical of Trump. Is that the canary in the coal mine? Pretty much. If you don't want to go to the United States, why don't you travel to the People's Republic of China and see if you can say something negative about Xi Jinping? I would say good luck with that one. What do you think would happen? I think you'll be arrested and put away. Wow. Is that that's how quickly they're going to respond how would they find out would it be uh somebody else another member of the general public yes you'll be denounced try publishing something be very difficult there's no freedom of speech there's no freedom of publication I, what's happening in china at the moment to me just seems it seems so alien given the current makeup of the world in the 21st century well, that's one of the points I, I was trying to make earlier on. Um, it, it resembles a you know good old-fashioned dictatorship, but they're running out of time. They seem out of place. Yeah, they do, don't they? It's this archaic old... And, and, but is the pressure ever going to come from within with these modern dictatorships? As I, I can't think of another name for them. These modern dictatorships... Is the uprising going to come from within or is it going to be the job of another government to step in and say, look, this is this is no longer allowed? 
Well, you never know, but generally it comes from within. Um, you know, all these people who have been such good actors, uh, all of a sudden will drop the pretense and storm your headquarters. This happened in Romania under Ceausescu. You can see how on the 21st of December 1989, he gives his speech from the balcony of the party headquarters. Uh, and bit by bit, the people who are supposed to be cheering him start shouting back and booing him. You could see almost the minute where this is obviously televised. Mm -hmm. You could see almost the minute where the fear breaks down and Ceausescu looks at the crowd uh, Utterly stupefied at what is happening. Three days later, he's shot. Wow. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting to have that those two realities existing at the same time. The one that is being dictated and the one which is actually happening. So one of the things that you've kept on mentioning is the charisma of the leaders. The fact that they are often great speakers or orators in the case of Hitler. Obviously, today we are seeing these techniques and these skills highly valued. You've got television debates, you've got social media and, and uh, always on communication. Do you think that the tactics and the techniques of the 20th century are being used at any point right now? Well, you know, dictators are always good in exploiting the latest technology. Adolf Hitler was... Uh very skilled at broadcasting his speeches. He, he worked at his broadcasting skills. He was a very good orator as well. Mussolini too tried to use television and radio to make sure that his presence was felt in every square. There would be public loudspeakers in cities, mobile ones taken to the countryside. Um, so today, of course, the internet is the latest technology. And indeed, certainly North Korea and the People's Republic of China, you can see how it is extremely carefully monitored. We thought for a while here in our democracies that the internet would be a tool of liberation. It turns out is the exact opposite when it's used by a dictatorship. It's very Orwellian, isn't it? Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder what it would be like to live in, in that environment. It's the same to me as saying, imagine what it's like to live on the moon, because it would be so many fundamentals of the way that you operate in society on your own, interpersonally, at business, at work. I'm a small business owner and how I would operate at work would be completely changed. If I was in China, I'd probably have a government representative either in my company or constantly checking in. It, it, it seems so alien. Well, it is alien. It's a different civilization altogether. It's a clash of civilizations. Um, I would have a party secretary in my history department who decides what kind of research I can do, what I should teach and who we should invite. There'd be a party member at every level. There would be no freedom of assembly, no freedom of speech, no freedom of religion, uh, except for the religion tolerated by the regime. Um, and, you know, no, no freedom of association either. So it's, it's just an alien regime, which is why you see what is happening in Hong Kong today, a very backwards 
almost barbaric regime that simply is incapable of administering a very sophisticated city like Hong Kong. If you cross the border from Hong Kong into the People's Republic of China, uh, it's a different culture. It's a different place. It's a different planet. And we tend to forget, you know, how alien it can be. Mm. Is there a, on pretty much every dictatorship, is there a limited lifespan? It's so volatile and there's so many ways it can go wrong that inevitably it's going to happen. Or could you see a world in which you get this 1984-style authoritarian regime that rises to the top and holds its power? Um, some of them last for a very long time. The Soviet Union would be one example. Um, but still, just over 70 years, the People's Republic of China will be celebrating its 70 years on the 1st of October next month. They rarely last much longer. So good luck. <laughs> Frank, today's been absolutely fantastic. I, I opened my eyes to a lot. Hopefully, we haven't inspired any would-be dictators, but we'll. Uh, I doubt it. We'll have to. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, link to how to be a dictator will be in the show notes below. Highly advise that you go and check it out. If anyone wants to read more of your work or find out some more information, where should they head online, Frank? Amazon.co.uk. <laughs> that's the it's the hub for everything do we think amazon might be a dictatorship i think it might be no i doubt it <laughs> jeff bezos jeff bezos might be living a double life you never know if we get any uh if we have any amazon workers that are listening feel free to give me a message and let me know if jeff bezos is actually a tyrant in waiting but um no frank today's been fantastic thank you so much for your time thank you get away, get away.